welcome to Writing in Faith, a podcast about the Christian and writing life. I'm your host, Daniel Didek, and this week we're going to be looking at story structure and the structure of the Bible, looking at storytelling in a way you may not be familiar with, but has impacted my writing probably more than anything else I've learned. It's also changed my view of God in some interesting ways. Stay tuned to find out how. It's probably going to be kind of a quick update this week because I recorded last week's episode kind of later in the week. And so for me, it hasn't been that many days since I last did anything. Here, still kind of trucking along with writing book four. That's been going really, really well, so that's been super exciting. Still no major snags yet. I finished the first two chapters, and the third chapter is a new point of view character. So that's been really cool to to step into a new character. It's always interesting starting a new book and a new story especially with new characters for me. There's two things that you kind of that I've run into. You know, first of all, with starting a brand new character, you know they need to be different from the characters you've had previously. And so there's always that worry of like, at least for me, will this person actually look and sound different in this new story or not? So kind of trusting in my creativity, a lot of it comes down to just I mean, they have different personalities in large part because of their different backgrounds, right? So, you know, even though it's going to be another female protagonist for book four, uh, like it was for book two. It's a different one, but she's been, you know, her, how she's gotten to where she is has been a lot, a lot different from Katie's. So there's that interesting part, but then also because I keep bringing in briefly characters from older stories. This happened in actually when I was writing book two, you know, I was writing Katie for so long. And then I brought in a female character from a previous book. And when they met, I was like, gee, I hope they sound different. <laughs> you know, first of all, that this the old character I'm bringing back in, that she still sounds like she did from book one, even though it had been at that point months, maybe even over a year since I'd written any dialogue for her, that she still sounded true to herself, but then that she sounded still very different from Katie. And so it was really cool when that did happen. They met and they were talking between each other and I could still hear the difference between the two of them. And so same thing is going to end up kind of happening probably to a degree in this book. So as I said, you know, it's Averlyn is kind of kind of the main character. There's going to be three big point of view characters. She's in the majority of the chapters. And so it's going to be primarily from her point of view. And then she's going to run into someone or some people from earlier books as well and making sure they sound different. So that's, that's kind of two things that, that no matter how you do it, to a degree, I mean, whether you're creating a new character each time, which means you know trying to make sure they sound different from one another, they don't look, you could say that they don't look the same. Or if you're, you know, if it's the same character over and over again, you've got to make sure they sound the same. But then for me, bringing in an old character that I maybe haven't written, you know, I haven't kind of entered their headspace and written from their point of view for a while, that when I suddenly bring them back in, that they still, they still sound like who they were. So... That's been fun. So the other thing that I've been able to do this past couple days is get a hold of my cover artist. And so we're going to start working on the cover for book three next week. And so there's a chance maybe that the publishing date will get bumped up a little bit. But right now we're still probably looking at just in order to get everything you know prepared in line to really do this right. I'm going to have a time of pre-order sales for you guys. So giving time for that and trying to get some reviews and stuff for it as well, maybe. So still looking at probably late May on that. So that's that's the two kind of big things. Book four is rolling along and book three is nearing a close. I've been able to talk to some of my early readers and get some feedback, really good feedback from them. So yeah, looking forward to that. So as I mentioned at the end of last week's episode, 
We're going to be changing things up a little bit today and actually doing the writing portion first. And there's kind of two reasons for this. First, we're not going to be looking at one particular verse out of scripture, but we're actually going to be taking a look kind of at the word of God as a whole. And then secondly, and actually probably the main reason why I'm going to be doing this is that unless I introduce the concepts of story structure first, which is the writing portion, none or very little of what I say during the devotional portion is going to make any amount of sense. So for those of you that just come forward with a devotion, I could tell you to skip ahead, but again, without hearing this first part, it might not make a whole lot of sense. So I hope you stick around, and whether you find use for it as a writer, or if you're not a writer, it'll kind of help you look at the Bible in a new way, and the way that I've begun looking at it now. It's a very personal kind of way for me. So as I said, we're going to be starting with the writing portion first. And I was introduced to this idea of story structure from author K.M. Wyland, who I think I've mentioned before. Um, She's a plotter to about the nth degree, if I've gotten any kind of clear sense from her blogs and her podcasts. But what's helpful for me as a pantser is that if something about my book is feeling off, whether it's the pacing, the character arcs, things like that, understanding a lot of what she has taught regarding structure and plotting can help me figure out what the problem might be that's going wrong with it. It gives me kind of a tool to once the scene is written or the chapter is written or the book is written, it it gives me that tool to look back over it and things that aren't working out say, oh, that's because I'm not hitting this structure that she lays out and that I'm about to lay out in part for you. So even though I don't lay out the whole story beforehand, having this grasp of structure that we're about to talk about can help me know when certain things should be happening. As I mentioned with planning my current work in progress, I know the final word count that I'm aiming for and roughly how long I want each chapter to be. So I can take that information, apply these principles of structure, and I was able to lay out what main events needed to be happening in each chapter to help me focus that, as well as plan out which character to jump to and when, and what needed to be going on in their story when I made those jumps. So what is story structure? you might be wondering. Many of you may be familiar with the three-act format. You may know the terms beginning, rising action, and climax. And we're going to throw in the French word today, donument, which just means a tying up of loose ends. It's also called the resolution in English. This is similar to saying, though, that a house has floors, walls, and ceilings, or a roof. But story structure, as houses, includes a lot more than this. K.M. Wyland has a 10-part blog series covering everything that we're about to really just gloss over, plus an 11th and 12th part answering readers' questions. So I've included a link into that series, her whole blog series, in the description. So if you want to go look in more detail how she describes plot structure, you can do that. She also has a book, Structuring Your Novel, where I'm sure she gets into a lot of depth in there as well. So the names for these parts that I'm going to be giving you are what K.M. Weiland has called them. Uh, some of them she got from other writers and people talking about the subject of writing. Some, I think maybe she has kind of made up herself a little bit. So they may have different names from different people. So as I said, what we're going to be covering here is an introduction to the concepts um, with examples from my own first book, By Ways Unseen. And then at the end, we'll kind of I'll give a defense against probably the strongest resistance to this idea that writers may have. So let's talk about what these parts are. The first component of the story she calls the hook. Oftentimes, the opening scene of a book or movie shows what life is like for the character, a life that we probably understand from watching enough movies or reading enough stories we understand is going to change forever, and though for a time the character may strive to reattain that life, they are going to be unable to do so. Basically, the hook, though, should be the question your readers ask by the end of the first chapter. It doesn't have to be explicit. And by ways unseen, by the end of the first chapter, we should be wondering if Hadrian is going to be able to become a swordsman, what his past is and why he's forgotten it, and will he ever remember it, 
and we may wonder if he'll be accepted by his peers despite his common heritage. The second part is called the first act. So this includes the hook. The first act should take between 20 to 25% of your book. So a pretty large chunk, equivalent to the first 77 to 96 pages of a 385 page book like mine, or the first 100 pages of a 400 page book. In this part, in this first act, the things we need to do as writers is we need to introduce our characters, the setting, the world, uh, whether it's the one we actually live in, or if it's a brand new world, we're gonna have to do some world building in that initial first quarter. We need to introduce the conflict, and then it needs to contain what K.M. Weiland calls the inciting event and the key event. These two events can be the same thing. Uh, they can also come at various times, including perhaps even before chapter one, before the book even begins. The inciting event is what sets the story in motion. The key event begins the main character's involvement in it. I really like the example that Weiland gave in her post to help understand this. In a mystery novel you could think of, the crime is the inciting event. Without the murder, there's no story about trying to solve the murder. The key event is when the detective takes on the case. So that's an example of two very separate events, one being the inciting event, the other one being the key event. So in By Ways Unseen, the inciting event does occur really before the book begins, when Last Rain comes to power. So we get the first hints of that event on page five of my book, and then even a little bit more detail on page seven. The key event, though, the thing that draws Hadrian into this story arc is when he leaves the School of Swordsmen at the end of chapter six. Now, he may have been involved in the fight against Lacerain to some degree as a soldier with the Earl, but as we see in those first several chapters, it would be an involvement far less than what Hadrian desires. So this first act also includes what she calls the first plot point. Now, as she mentions, there may be any number of actual plot points within this first quarter. So what we're referring to here is the plot point from which there is no return. This can also be the key event, but it doesn't have to be. The important thing is that this is not an event that simply happens to the protagonist, but is also about him or her reacting to it. For Hadrian, this happens after the bandit attack and he sets off for Hobb. Up until then, he has been swept along by the events of the story, still making choices as best he can, but certainly not in any sort of controlled way. And while he begins to make a plan as soon as he's outside the castle, beginning in chapter 7, he doesn't truly and firmly decide on the plan that eventually carries him through the rest of the story until that event on pages 76 and 77. So within the first fifth to quarter of the book, we have the introduction of our characters, all the main players of our story, including the antagonist, as well as the introduction of the conflict and setting. We have our hook, letting our readers know why they should care. We have the inciting event and key event, or some indication of what those events were. And we have the first plot point, when the character reacts irrevocably to something that happens to them, which ends the first act. Now we come to the second act, which is going to be the largest chunk. It'll last from that 20 to 25% mark all the way through to the 75% mark. Though Wyland divides it nicely for us into three parts. So the first half of the second act, the main point of this section is to show how the character's reaction has ushered in their new life. Conceivably, they could have continued to not react, even to the first plot point, and life might have gone on. So from the 20 or 25% mark to the 50% mark, we need to show how that reaction has altered their story. During this time, it's important that they are still reacting and have not yet truly taken control of their story. I'll quote again from Wyland's blog post, since their lives and plans have been turned upside down, or at least significantly altered, they have to find new ways of dealing with the world in general and the main antagonistic force in particular. The second part is the midpoint, shockingly arriving at the 50% mark. It is this event that still proceeds naturally from the previous events, but this time the choice the character makes starts off a set of actions. 
They are, for the first time, in some amount of control of their life. After a whole quarter of the book against the ropes, the protagonist now finally comes out swinging and takes the fight to the enemy. And by ways unseen, this actually doesn't happen until the 60% mark. So if you've read it and it feels like the book is dragging, you're right. Though the story begins to turn with the first attack by the dragon, closer to the 50% mark, and Hadrian starts to realize his journey might not be about what he thought it was about, he is still forced to react to other people's control on his life until after the second attack. So it is a bit sluggish here, I will admit. My book is not perfect, but I would hate to deny you the whimsical wonder of the happy tale of Bowendale, so I'll leave everything I have in there still in there. While the first plot point forced them into the quest, or into the story, this midpoint usually offers some sort of way out, but instead the character chooses to remain, and for their own reasons. Here, too, Hadrian could simply continue the mission he'd been given. Instead, he begins to take matters into his own hands and does them in his own terms. The second half of the second act are all the rest of the actions the protagonist takes up until the climax. All their inner turmoil is not yet gone, and, as Wyland mentions, the line between action and reaction gets blurry very quickly. The main point during this is that there is at least inner action. While still reacting to events caused by others, as I mentioned, Hadrian is doing the action under his own terms now, but his ultimate goal has not changed, nor his attitude toward it, and, most importantly, his central problems introduced in the first pages are not yet resolved. Then, at the 75% mark, begins the final act. This should also start with some major plot point, which will also close out the second act. In this act, all the loose ends are tied up, at least the ones not being saved for the sequel. All the main characters assemble, including the antagonist. All of your subplots and foreshadowing come to pass. In short, there's a lot to do in this last quarter, which is why it tends to fly by so swiftly. The main point of this third and final act is the climax. It can be a huge battle, and usually is in epic fantasy, but mostly it needs to be some final conclusion made by the protagonist. In a sense, the climax of By Ways Unseen happens actually before the final battle in a much smaller battle upstairs. It is, after all, this battle where Hadrian primarily overcomes his demons. But there is one more thing for him to learn, and plus he has to face the instigator of the inciting event, which he does at the final, final battle. In all stories, the climax comes very near the end and is sometimes the second-to-last scene in the entire book. You can think especially of mystery novels, where occasionally the climax is the final scene, the revelation of the murderer. This is the resolution, or the fancy word donument that we used earlier, the tying up of loose ends. Especially in a series, this is the time to get the surviving characters off toward their next story and remind the readers of what questions still remain. If you've done your job well, your e readers will be eagerly anticipating the second installment. To wrap up this portion, I want to address what is likely a common concern among creative types. Surely, this level and amount of structure makes stories bland, boring, and repetitive, doesn't it? Such a formulaic approach to writing a story is only for dime store romances and manufactured thrillers. Maybe good enough to be New York Times bestsellers, but isn't true art. So let's explore an analogy, and one I've foreshadowed. Houses. As we mentioned, we know homes all have floors, walls, and ceilings. They also have kitchens, usually some sort of dining room, living rooms, bedrooms, and bathrooms. Maybe some have libraries or dens, basements, upper floors, maybe an office or sunroom. Usually all the rooms are square-shaped or very nearly. Houses all follow some sort of structure. But we can be even more specific because often houses follow an even stricter structure format than that. Imagine you have a guest visiting your house. Wherever you're sitting or wherever you live, you have a guest there, and they ask where the bathroom is. Think of your own home. You would respond, sure, just go where. I bet a lot of you thought, down the hall, 
Did you ever realize how many bathrooms are located down the hall, X door on your left or right or straight ahead? And yet no two homes are identical inside. Even if the structure is exactly the same because it's prefab, and even if the options are limited, the decorations, furniture, and feel of every home is unique to the owner. The fact that the owner is a human being with personality can often change the feel of a home, can't it? This is much the same as stories. Sure, sometimes romances or thrillers, really any genre fiction, can feel like a prefab, while literary fiction often feels more like a Frank Lloyd Wright. But because we are steeped in story from a very young age, and stories have been handed down for millennia, we always come to expect certain things when we read a book. You may not have known about structure, but you probably could tell that you start getting bored with a story, or it seems to lag behind then maybe suddenly rush ahead, and that will most often be because the structure is off. Either the first plot point is too early or too late, or the character is reacting the whole time through and never takes matters into their own hands, or the climax is just sort of an intense scene but doesn't actually resolve much, or the story just ends at some point and there didn't seem to be any sort of arc. Structure is often unseen and only felt when it's askew. So next time you're reading a book, I invite you to check the page count first and write down on a scrap of paper or your bookmark if it's not too nice of one, what page is at the 20, 25, 50, and 75% marks, and see if it matches up to these events. So far, I have yet to find one that doesn't. You can also do this with movies, since you can get through those a lot more quickly. Note the overall runtime, and see if events happen when they're supposed to. You might be surprised at how closely it does match. The one that surprised me probably the most was the Bible. We mentioned two weeks ago that the Bible wasn't divided into chapters and verses until long after they had been written. Originally, they were just one long piece of text, by and large. Paul's letters were single and complete, so there's a lot that can be lost when we think an argument or point ends at the end of a chapter, or especially a verse. There are tons of examples of Paul saying, therefore, on and on and on throughout a letter. Quick note I've heard of a lot, and maybe you have as well. When a verse says, therefore, remember to ask what it's there for, because the preceding point Paul makes directly relates to the one that begins, Therefore, still further errors made, though, when we look at each book of the Bible individually as though it was written by that author at their sole discretion and only for the purposes they intended. I remember a friend of mine once saying, and it was this has happened more than once, people going in saying they're going to do a red letter study, meaning they're only going to read the words that Christ has spoken and take a second or third look at their own theology under light of those scriptures alone. Now, I understand where they're coming from. I, too, believe that a lot of what especially American Christians believe may be more influenced by American philosophy than from Scripture. And, like my friend and others much like him, sometimes I worry that 2,000 years of theological study of Scripture has ever so slowly gone awry, so that ideas and principles we take for granted today actually have no place in Scripture. But it's been taught and sung and passed on so long that maybe even certain pastors can't tell the difference anymore. Or if they do, they refrain from speaking on it because it goes counter to what's been so deeply entrenched for so long. We continue to read the same verses, continuing to interpret them in the light of what we've already been taught, even when the pure text of the verse or passage simply doesn't make sense, interpreted the way it is. The problem, though, with the idea of a red-letter study is that it ignores 2 Timothy 3.16 that we've read before. All scripture is breathed by God. but also ignores John 12.49, which are in red-letter. Jesus says, For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. It seems to make sense that because Jesus only had a certain amount of time on the earth, that whatever he said would be deemed as the most important thing to say. But Jesus' life on earth was not the beginning or the end of the story. He was there from the beginning, according to the first chapter of John, and will continue on forever. 
Since John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, it is important for us to remember that the entire Bible is one long story and can be read as such. So it was fascinating to me, learning about story structure, to then turn and look at the complete Bible, Genesis to Revelation, as though it were one complete book. And look what it does. Genesis, the beginning. And what a great opening line to hook the reader, isn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The inciting event. Without creation, the rest of the story ceases to exist. We're introduced to the characters, God, mankind, and Satan. We're giving the setting, earth, and an allusion to the kingdoms of heaven and hell. We have a glimpse of what life was like before the complication, before the introduction of the conflict. Life in the Garden of Eden, man, woman, God, and the animals all living in harmony. In chapter 3, we meet the antagonist, Satan. By this point, already fallen, so we know some things have been going on before the earth was created. The key event is our choice to disobey God. Now we enter the storyline and are wrapped up in the plot of God, Satan, and our redemption. It's actually because of that key event that I begin to wonder if the inciting event wasn't actually Satan's rebellion against God, but maybe more on that in another episode. Now let's look at some numbers. In raw page count, in the NIV that I pulled this out of, the 20-25% to 25% mark lands us between Judges chapter 19 and 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel 22 is interesting because David is praising God for delivering him from all his enemies. Then in chapter 23, headed as the last words of David, he writes about God's eternal covenant with his house. And so it's around this point, and when Solomon eventually takes the throne, that Israel lives in peace and security for many years. A few short pages later, in 1 Kings, David is waning and Israel begins its descent into what eventually becomes exile. And 1 Kings chapter 1 is at the 25.4% mark. So we do encounter this first plot point when Israel, in a sense, reacts to unprecedented peace in a way that changes irrevocably the story we've been reading, pretty much right at that 25% mark. The first half of the second act, then, is living out that reaction, and they're trying to make their way in light of this new life in their promised land, safe and secure from oppression in Egypt and wandering the wastelands, a time of finally being home. And they handle it badly. They follow the other nations in their worship of false gods. Their trust and faith in the true God mostly wanes as they follow religion and law rather than trying to understand God's heart. The midpoint, then, at 50%, lands us in Proverbs chapter 3. Not super significant, though interesting that the chapter is on seeking wisdom, leaning on God and not our own understanding, and giving our hearts to God. But let's say we fudge a little bit to the beginning of Isaiah, a time when the doom of Israel in light of all its disobedience begins to be foretold. And Isaiah chapter 1 lands us at about 54%, which is really close. Now, we could get really sneaky here and discount Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther because those are technically during Israel's exile, and then we could imagine ourselves moving them chronologically to the right, and suddenly Isaiah would begin at 51.1%. But either way we dice it, that's really, really close for what we might previously have thought was just a random collection of books. Now, we start to see some actions from God and from those close to him, taking decisive action in prophesying destruction and exile unless the people change their ways. Interwoven in all this are little extra prophecies of the coming Messiah, a foreshadowing of the climax to come. 75% finds us in Zephaniah chapter 2. Remember, 75% is supposed to start the final act. Zephaniah is a small book overall. He's one of the minor prophets. But it's interesting to me that Zephaniah chapters 1 and chapter 3 are prophecies against Israel and Judah for their disobedience, but chapter 2 right at the 75% mark, is filled with prophecies against those opposed to Israel and Judah. Hmm. But also, if we fudge some numbers again, we find that Matthew chapter 1 
lands us at 76.8%. Again, really stinking close. And here we have our climax between Matthew 1 and John 21, the end of the Gospels, brings us to 86.6% or 86.7% if we go until Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples. Jesus has come and fulfilled the law and the prophets and finally made complete the story arc God had begun in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. All that remains are the epistles and revelation, the resolution, and life now that the climax has come and gone. Now, you may say to yourself, okay, kind of interesting, but so what? And here's where it got personal to me. I was, quite honestly, pitching a fit one day a couple years ago. Truly and honestly, I was being a bit petulant. It frustrated me that singing songs in church is the accepted form of worship, but I can't sing, have very little rhythm, and though I want to learn to play piano, I haven't yet. I can play O Come O Come Emmanuel and the theme song from Top Gun, but not much else. And worship leaders seem to smugly take for granted that their gifts and abilities are acceptable to God within the community of believers, but writers of fiction, for instance, aren't. Sorry, Tyler, I doubt you actually feel like that. Like I said, I was pitching a fit. But if you object and say you can't sing, they just smile and say, well, just bring your best and God honors the gift anyway. Of course, not wanting to be Cain, I do bring the gift God requires and not the one I want to, and I sing as best I can during worship. But as I said, this was frustrating me. So one day during prayer, realizing all this about the structure of the Bible, it suddenly occurred to me that there's no better writer than God. I mean, think about it. Can anyone pull off a plot twist like him? They have no more wine. I've been blind since birth. I can't make it into the pool and have been stuck here and lame for 38 years. But then a Samaritan came along. I'm dead. Does anyone foreshadow like him? Isaiah tells us he makes known the end from the beginning, and we'll look more at that in a few weeks. But God is the ultimate storyteller, weaving an incomparable tale over the span of millennia, using numerous authors and people we'd never expect that the Israelites never expected because they were not deemed as belonging to God's chosen people. It changed my view forever and was one more step in making God more personal to me than I had known him previously. When I went to praise him and sit in awe of who he is, I can imagine him as a writer and storyteller and make that personal connection that I hadn't previously. So that's why I think it's important. It may not save many souls, but it brought peace to mine, and I hope it brings peace to yours. That's all for this week. Thanks again for joining me, and come back next week as we turn to look at wisdom, God's wisdom particularly, and in contrast to the wisdom of the world. We're also going to be looking at promises and flipping our readers' expectations. I'm excited for another good talk, so I hope you'll join me. Until then, keep the faith and keep writing.